Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week for the interview, I'll be talking with Beverly Finlay Kaneko, a journalist and educator who used to live in Japan. She now lives in Southern California and works between the two countries to raise awareness about Fukushima and to raise funds to help children affected by the nuclear accident. She'll be providing an on-the-ground report from a recent trip she took back there to let us know what it looks like for those still living in Japan. Plus, we're going to have the radiation protection tip, numbnuts of the week for nuclear boneheadedness, and much more. All of it will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, September 3rd, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Japan continues to be the focus, because while politicians and TEPCO executives keep pretending they've got things under control as they spew false assurances out to the rest of the world, which of course includes the International Olympic Committee, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, a growing number of mainstream media outlets, scientists, politicians, and just plain folks are waking up to the nature and magnitude of the international danger posed by the Japanese manhandling of the Fukushima Daiichi triple nuclear meltdown. We'll start with word released by TEPCO this past weekend about radiation levels, which were much higher than we were led to believe. Very high radiation levels were observed on Saturday, August 31st, at three tanks and at one of the pipes connecting them at the crippled nuclear facility. This points to the possibility that radioactive water may have newly leaked. The radiation readings were between 70 and 1,800 millisieverts per hour. To put that in context, 70 millisieverts, the low end, is three and a half times the yearly dose limit for nuclear workers, while 1,800 is just under the level that will cause acute radiation sickness. An unnamed whistleblower at Fukushima Daiichi, someone who helped build the storage tanks two years ago, warned late last month that the storage tanks were hastily built and, quote, we were told to put a priority on making the tanks rather than quality control. Then he warned, all of the tanks are makeshift, so more toxic water may leak as they deteriorate. More on those tanks that are holding the water from Per Peterson, chair of the Department of Nuclear Engineering at the University of California at Berkeley. He said, The primary containment vessel is being left submerged in salty water and is corroding. You want to be trying to flush out all that salt that was injected into those reactors, which right now is contributing to the corrosion of these primary containment vessels. If they don't survive, it will become challenging or impossible to get the damaged fuel out. He went on to say, By misdirecting a lot of the effort to do things that don't reduce risk significantly, they're creating in Japan a much larger possibility that in the end it will not be possible to get the damaged fuel out, and they will have to manage those plants at that site for millennia going into the future. Which brings us to my nomination for Nuclear Hot Seat, Numbnuts of the Week! And it's none other than Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Mr. Pro-Nuke Head himself. 
Last week, Prime Minister Abe promised prompt, comprehensive steps to clean up that wrecked Fukushima nuclear plant. Prompt? Abe, baby, too frickin' late. Where were you 31 months ago? No, 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 this is not prompt. And I doubt that it's comprehensive. Now, Abe recently suggested to the plant's operator, TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, that it was incapable of overseeing the operation on its own. Yeah, think? Abe said the government would soon announce a comprehensive plan to deal with the world's largest nuclear cleanup, just in time to impress the International Olympic Committee, which is in the process of deciding where, oh where, the 2020 Olympics are going to be held. Tokyo is one of three finalists, the others being Istanbul and Madrid. Hey, IOC, as regards considering Tokyo for the 2020 Olympics... It's evil! Don't touch it! Now here's some more numbnutsery for you. Remember those elevated radiation readings at the tanks that TEPCO announced from just last weekend? TEPCO had initially recorded radiation levels near the tank at about 100 millisieverts an hour, but admitted that this was because the equipment used could only read measurements up to that level. Yuck, 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 those jokesters! The latest reading, which was up to 1,800 millirem, came from a more advanced device capable of reading up to 10,000 millisieverts. Keep that equipment around. You never know when it's going to prove useful. Now, the water situation is really out of control. The site of the remains of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant has tanks, basements, and pits containing an estimated 338,000 tons of radioactively tainted water, and more is being added to it daily. Even the chairman of the country's Nuclear Regulatory Authority, Shunichi Tanaka, said on Monday, September 2nd, that TEPCO's monitoring of the more than 1,000 water tanks at the site had been inadequate. That was his word. Now dig it. Previously, only two workers were dispatched twice a day to check the tanks, but they did not carry personal radiation monitors and failed to keep proper records of their inspections. Tanaka said that a small leak and signs of possible leaks had been spotted at several other storage tanks. How? Two guys? A thousand tanks? Two inspections a day? You gotta be kidding. TEPCO, doing what it always does, apologized for the great anxiety and inconvenience, those were their words, caused by the contaminated water. Hey, TEPCO, how about finding an appropriate way, a karmic way, to apologize for mm, the birth defects, the thyroid cancers the destruction to the environment, the wrecking of the food chain, the poisoning of the Pacific Ocean. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. But, of course, in the middle of apologizing, the utility took issue with media reports suggesting workers at the site were at risk of being irradiated. The firm said in an emailed statement, We believe that we can control radiation exposure by using proper equipment and clothing. We will investigate the cause of this issue, taking any appropriate countermeasures immediately, and continue to make every effort to secure the safety of the workers. 
then why is it that it has been reported through IntelliHub.com that people working at Fukushima Daiichi were told to cover their radiation detection devices with lead so the reading would come in below the legal limit? Build up a subcontractor for a plant operator, TEPCO, admitted one of its executives told workers to put lead shields on radiation detection devices. Otherwise, they would have rapidly exceeded the legal limit for exposure. So, better to lie and irradiate the employees rather than giving them a chance to have a future, have a genetic future? As has been announced in the news, radiation levels at Fukushima are now many times higher than the lethal limit. Most news agencies are reporting on this as a sudden spike, which may be true, but it seems now that no one could know for sure if the detection devices were being tampered with all along since the beginning. This new announcement of the leaks threatens to delay Prime Minister Abe's plan to restart the nuclear reactors, a move he says is necessary to support Japan's economic recovery and improve TEPCO's tattered finances. Right, like that's more important than the lives of the children in Fukushima. Japan's foreign ministry has started posting English-language information online showing that atmospheric radiation levels in Tokyo, 140 miles south of Fukushima Daiichi, are comparable with those in London and New York. Right. And if you believe that, we've got some land in Futuba that we'd like to sell you for really good prices. Just remember, keep that lead patch over your radiation monitor and everything will be A-OK. So, all of this, all of it, on your shoulders, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, is the nuclear hot seat numbnuts of the week. The experts, the pundits are starting to step out of the shadows and are starting to be heard by mainstream media. This from CNN International's Ralista Vasileva. Michael Schneider, who is a nuclear expert, said, It is increasingly clear that TEPCO is not in control at all of the site. Ha! You think? This is like an organized denial because we're finding out now that TEPCO has been knowing for a long time that there's actually leaks into the ocean, probably right from the start. It never stopped! I love it when the experts get it right. Hirohiko Izumida, the governor of Niigata Prefecture, said that TEPCO, on either the 11th or 12th of March of 2011, had already anticipated a meltdown. He said, It should be made clear as to who gave the instructions to tell lies for a period of two months. The governor went on to say, It is necessary for them to do this to regain credibility. No, I think that ship has sailed. ABC Radio Australia interviewed Professor Richard Tanner, an expert on nuclear power issues and professor of international relations at the University of Melbourne. He was asked, what do you think is the biggest technical challenge facing the ruined nuclear plant to make it safe again? Professor Tanner said, the most immediate challenge is the news that the reactor unit 4, the one which has a very large amount of stored fuel in its fuel storage pool, is sinking. According to former Prime Minister Naoto Kan, it has sunk some 31 inches in places and is not even. There is an extraordinary possibility we really could be back at March 2011 again because of the possibility of a fission accident in that spent fuel pond in unit number 4. His words are echoed by David Webb, 
chief executive officer of Origin Investments in Sweden, a venture capitalist, went on record as saying, I think we should keep in mind that TEPCO declared plants 1, 2, and 3 to be in cold shutdown. And, of course, we now know that was not the case. Other people were pointing out that the cores had melted down through the facility. We now know that is the case. The most dangerous thing is the cooling pool of Unit 4, because the entire hot core of Reactor 4 had been removed and put in the cooling pond shortly before the tsunami. He should have said the earthquake, because that's what started it all. The tsunami just made it worse. Webb went on to say, The entire area is weakened, and there is a great risk of an aftershock. This pool contains something on the order of 400 kilograms of hot plutonium. So the thing that people should be aware of is that TEPCO is going to begin attempting to remove these rods. The announced timeline on that is November. As you'll hear from your interview, it may be sooner than that. And this is the potential nightmare scenario, the removal of the fuel rods from the spent fuel pool that was discussed by Arnie Gunderson on a Fairwinds podcast that we incorporated in Nuclear Hot Seat last week. Hedge fund manager David Webb also said, The media coverage of the situation has been almost non-existent. The public must become engaged and the governments must become engaged because this is a global threat, perhaps the greatest threat humanity has ever faced. The measures that the Japanese government is discussing at this point are not sufficient, I believe. Other governments must become engaged in this. Well, hey, nobody wants to listen to the activists. Maybe they'll hear it from a Swedish CEO who obviously has been listening to the activists. The only piece of good news this week to come out of Japan is a temporary one, but we'll take anything we can get at this point. Yesterday, September 2nd, Japan shut down Unit 3 of the OE nuclear power plant for maintenance and inspections. That leaves just one Japanese nuclear power reactor in operation, the sister unit, OE-4, which is scheduled to begin an outage in two weeks. These were both planned shutdowns. In normal operations, Japan's nuclear power plants are taken offline for refueling, maintenance, and safety inspection every 13 months. It is not yet known when OE-3 and 4 are likely to restart. The NRA, Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority, earlier said that it will not conduct inspections of the units until an ongoing investigation is completed into seismic fault lines at the site. However, even with them offline, this good news is short-lived because four Japanese utilities, Kansai, Hokkaido, Shikoku, and Kyushu, have applied for permission to restart 12 of the country's non-operating reactors. The NRA expects to take around six months to process an application, Now, I love the wording that comes next, meaning that some units could potentially come back online before the end of this year. Excuse me, we're in September. It's four months to the end of the year. It's going to take around six months to process an application. They can't even do that amount of math? Or do they just know something about the potential restarts that we don't yet know? Okay, and this story that has been doing the rounds went viral on the Internet. No confirmation, and we don't need to make things worse than they are. They're bad enough by themselves. So here's the question. When is boiling water not boiling water? Well, perhaps when it's in the ocean just outside of Fukushima Daiichi. 
There have been pictures in the last week of what looks like a large amount of steam rising from the water in the harbor in front of the remains of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. But what's causing this steam, fog, mist, clouds, swamp gas is not conclusively known. There's no word of how frequently this shows up, the duration that it remains there, or the possible cause. Here in Southern California, I know we have a morning marine layer that can look alarming or look like we've got a really bad day when natives know that the sun will come out by about 11 o'clock in the morning. Let's just not jump to conclusions. The truth about what's happening in Japan is bad enough. We have no need to exaggerate or catastrophize. In the meantime, let's keep an eye on that whatever it is and see what it may turn into. It's a bummer week. I can't help it. It's a bummer week. I'll do what I can to keep it light for you. This is more about the radioactive plume coming in the Pacific Ocean, only now we're going to look at it from the North American point of view. A team at the University of New South Wales in Australia focused on predicting the path of the radioactivity released into the ocean from Fukushima Daiichi until it reached the continental shelf waters stretching from the U.S. coastline to about 180 miles offshore. About 10 to 30 becquerels per cubic meter of cesium-137 could reach the U.S. and Canadian coastal waters north of Oregon between 2014 and 2020. California's coast may receive just 10 to 20 becquerels per cubic meter between 2016 and 2025, a little bit later. Either way, we're screwed. Aditi Roy of ABC News in Los Angeles reported, there are fears that the contaminated water could reach the U.S. in less than a year. Some debris has already made its way to the West Coast. Battered fishing boats, appliances, and other garbage. No mention was made of the possible radiation level or lack thereof in the debris because there has been no official report of what that might be. Now let's move away from Japan because we have plenty of homegrown nuclear problems right here. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission is seeking input on the Yucca Mountain restart. Don't touch it! It's evil! On August 13, as reported here on Nuclear Hot Seat, the U.S. Court of Appeals directed the NRC to continue with the legally mandated licensing process for a geologic repository for nuclear waste at the Nevada site. The court order becomes effective today, September 3, 2013, but the NRC has given respondents until September 30th to lodge their views. Nye County, Nevada, has already asked for NRC Chair Allison McFarlane to withdraw from matters related to Yucca Mountain because of her academic and consultancy work on the project prior to her appointment to the NRC. This work by Chair McFarlane included publication of statements critical of the project. The filing by Nye County, Nevada, raised doubts about her impartiality, making her recusal mandatory. Right, like the other commissioners, Spignicki, Magwood, Apostolakis, and Ostendorf aren't biased? Now, the only bias that's allowed is that which is in favor of nuclear, and that's not considered to be bias. That's considered to be status quo. Note to all media listening, take note when you file your own reports. 
In another usual, unusual event at a nuclear reactor, the operator of the Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station in Arizona declared an unusual event late Monday when insulation behind a pump caught fire. What is it with all these fires at nuclear power plants? Want to know how much nuclear really costs? Too cheap to meter? I think not. Federal officials say it will cost more than $900 million to decommission the closed nuclear reactor at the Three Mile Island site in Pennsylvania. This was the nuclear reactor that was the site of what is considered to be the worst commercial nuclear power plant accident in U.S. history, which happened back in 1979. I should know I was there. John Buckley of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said at a meeting last Wednesday in Hershey, Pennsylvania, that dismantling Three Mile Island's Unit 2 and returning the property to a pre-plant state would cost about $918 million in 2012 dollars. Current plans call for reactor owner First Energy Corporation to begin dismantling the reactor sometime after 2034. Ah, oh, gee guys, why so fast? NRC spokesmodel Neil Sheehan said, if there is a deficit when it comes to the decommissioning, the NRC will go back to the company First Energy and ensure that it addresses any shortfalls. You gotta be kidding. You know that if there's any shortfall, it's going to come out of taxpayer pockets. Eric Epstein of TMI Alert, which monitors Three Mile Island and two other nuclear facilities in Pennsylvania, questioned First Energy's ability to fund the decommission. He said, let's be honest, they don't have the money. They don't have the technology. The reality is that the plant will never be decommissioned. Epstein suggested that the most likely scenario was that the reactor would simply be entombed and left as is. The NRC branch chief acknowledged that entombment is indeed an option. Just look at how well it worked for Chernobyl. 26 years, and they're going to have to build a new one. And finally, this item from protesters out on Cape Cod. The Cape Downwinders took advantage of the Labor Day traffic jam, which always exists on the Cape, to alert drivers to their demand that the Pilgrim nuclear power plant in Plymouth, Massachusetts, be shut down. You're a persistent cuss, Pilgrim. The group says Cape residents and tourists could be trapped if a serious accident ever occurred at Pilgrim because there is no workable evacuation plan. The nuclear plant is the same GE Mark I reactor design as the three melted-down reactors at Fukushima. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission voted last year to relicense Pilgrim through 2032, a total of 60 years, which is 20 years longer than it was originally designed to survive without having dangerous breakdowns. Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick said recently that it wasn't clear to him whether the state needed Pilgrim. The recent announcement that the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant would close at the end of 2014 has focused renewed attention on Pilgrim because both are owned by Entergy Corporation, which is often referred to within the activist community as the slumlords of the nuclear industry. Shut them down. Shut them all down. Let's get some first-hand information about what's going on in Japan. I met Beverly Finlay Kaneko through the activist community here in Southern California as we worked so hard and so successfully to get the San Onofre nuclear power plant shut down. 
Beverly has spent most of her career in education and journalism, most recently as a faculty member of the International Graduate School of Social Sciences at Yokohama National University and a writer for the Japan Times and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Even before Beverly and I got started talking, she had an important point she needed to make. On the introduction, if you would kindly not describe me as an evacuee from Japan, because I really find that language sort of disturbing, because, you know, I really see the true evacuees as the people who have had to leave their homes in Fukushima. And, you know, I mean, they're the true evacuees or refugees. I'm somebody who happened by coincidence on the very same day as the accident to have a family emergency and I came home initially because of that and then we've made a really I think a very long drawn out and excruciating decision to split my family up so I don't really see myself as you know the evacuee who had to rush off or flee a disaster and Sometimes, you know, when people are describing something where I've spoken at a city council or this and that, the language ends up using evacuee, and I I just don't really feel that honors the people who have really and truly lost their homes and their livelihoods and their families and everything else because of the disaster. So, I mean, you could call me a a former resident. So with that in mind... Beverly Finlay Kaneko is a former resident of Japan who spent over 20 years in that country until March 16, 2011, when a family emergency brought her and her son Ryan back to Southern California only five days after the earthquake and tsunami on March 11. She has been living here with her son ever since. Beverly works to raise awareness about Fukushima and funds to help children affected by the nuclear accident. She is part of the bilingual team of Families for Safe Energy, an independent educational organization that supports communities and schools in learning about safe energy resources. Her husband remains in Yokohama taking care of his elderly parents and commutes to the U.S. every few months to be with his family. Beverly returned to Japan this past August for a family emergency, but while over there she made time to attend anti-nuclear events, talk with activists, and get a feel for what the nuclear issues look like on the ground in Japan. First of all, I'd I'd like to point out that August is a time in Japan where you had both the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings and the end of the war. So it happens to be a time of the year where the national focus is on the nuclear problem. And I believe that a lot of the events were planned with this August timing in, in mind. So that, that was a great opportunity for me to actually be over there and participate in a lot of these events. In your conversations with the Japanese people, did you find that there was still a level of alarm about Fukushima? There have been massive demonstrations shown in the past of people protesting nuclear. Did you find that that was still the belief over there? Or has there possibly been a turning away because of the pressures of government and mainstream media information? The trip was a study in contrast. And there is a stark contrast between the people who are truly concerned 
and active in the whole anti-nuclear movement in Japan and then the normal regular everyday populace. So when I am among the very active group of anti-nuclear people, of course the conversation is very much oriented toward what's going on at the power plant, toward what's happening with the victims, and so on and so forth. But when I'm just meeting with friends, it does not come up as a topic of conversation at all, unless they say, well, what have you been doing? And then I kind of feel like I have a chance to segue into, well, actually, I've started a nonprofit and we're trying to raise money for child victims in Fukushima and we're trying to raise awareness in the United States and we get a little conversation going. It's not something that I dwell on because, you know, once you open the faucet, it doesn't stop. And, you know, that can be a real mood killer when you're among friends and dear people that you love very much and that you haven't seen for a long time. I belong to the Association of Foreign Wives of Japanese and the topic of Fukushima does not come up hardly at all on any of our mailing lists and um, our Facebook groups. It just, it doesn't come up, which is kind of surprising to me because we're mostly a group of mothers and, you know, we do talk about health and child rearing and so on and so forth. And really those issues of food contamination and so on don't come up. Let's talk about those places where the topic did come up. Yes. You attended several events while you were over there. The first one was a symposium. What was the purpose of the symposium? And tell us about some of the people who were speaking there. Well, actually, there were two um, separate sort of symposiums. The first one was August 16th, and the second one was August 18th. And August 16th was more of a concert with three different speakers afterward. Both events were organized by Days Japan magazine. It's a photojournalism magazine. And the editor of the magazine is Hirokawa Ryuichi. And I'm very sad because actually yesterday it was announced that he is going to be retiring. And uh, he is just an absolutely wonderful force uh, on the side of trying to make good out of this situation. He is somebody who actually chronicled Chernobyl, and he's been, he's one of those on the ground kind of war and disaster photographers. He documented Chernobyl from the beginning over the years, so he has photos of children growing up and having thyroid surgery and growing up and getting married and uh, the ones that died and their funerals. And so he's got this whole background of, of seeing the Chernobyl disaster unfold in a very human way over the decades. And so when Fukushima happened, he was on the ground on March 12th filming and he has also he's a great humanitarian he's immediately 
got people together and opened up a beach camp down in Okinawa where he brings kids from contaminated areas. It doesn't have to be just Fukushima. It could be some other surrounding prefectures that have suffered contamination. He brings kids down there so that they can detox, so they can play outside and have fun and just be kids. And uh, it's an important thing for their growth to have this time to play outdoors and just be healthy kids. So he's he's a wonderful person, and we're really sorry to see that he is retiring. And they're looking for somebody else to take over his uh, magazine, Days Japan, and they haven't found somebody. He was the organizer. He is the force behind all of this. Hiroshi Takashi. One of the other speakers shared slides of his recent visit inside the hot zone. What was he reporting about what he saw there? In his visit inside the hot zone, where he also went together with a couple of other people, he found highly elevated levels of radioactive contamination that were many, many factors above what it was in in the worst places in Chernobyl. And he also shared a little bit about a recent visit that he took to Germany to with uh, Yamamoto Taro to see what's done with nuclear waste in Germany. So that's what he talked about. Um, Hirose Takashi is also somebody who is a real force in the movement in Japan. He was actually considered kind of crazy for many, many years because he wrote a lot of books. He's an independent journalist, and he wrote a lot of books about the dangers of nuclear power. And just six months before Fukushima happened, he actually wrote a book called Nuclear Reactor Time Bomb, talking about how Japan is earthquake-prone and the danger of nuclear power talked about the dangers of MOX fuel, the fuel cycle, and waste. And uh, so he had written this book, and it was almost like a prophecy for what happened in Fukushima. So suddenly this man who was sort of considered uh, a fanatic even before the accident happened was suddenly thrust into the limelight. He's also the person, I think everybody remembers last year, last July, when the huge protests happened in the Capitol. Right. That was up to, what, about 100,000 people showing up, jamming in? Yes. And you also remember how the mainstream media completely blacked it out. It was completely ignored in the mainstream media. You did have smaller outfits like the Japan Times or the Tokyo Shimbun out there and documenting what happened. But the bigger newspapers, the television, completely blacked it out. And our media also followed along as if nothing had happened. There were over 100,000 people marching on the Capitol. Now, Hirose Takashi said, I don't care about the mainstream media. We're going to get some helicopters, and we're going to go up there, and we're going to document that this so he's the one he was the force behind getting the helicopters into the air and there was the um, IWJ your internet web journal that's the online media outlet 
And so they went up there and they filmed the protests from helicopters. And that's how we were able to see it on the internet. How pervasive is the mainstream media lessening or diminishing of the issues and the dangers surrounding Fukushima? The mainstream media initially tried to black everything out. And now it appears that they are covering things a little bit more. However, if you look at what's coming across the news desks, everything is repeated from whatever has been said at TEPCO's press conferences. So in other words, we only know what TEPCO is willing to admit to, not necessarily how that relates to the current truth. Right. So the only way we know is when, say, people like Hirose Takashi take a tour inside the hot zone and take measurements and so on, or somebody, for example, another speaker at the symposium was Kanaka Mitsuhiko. He's actually Hirose's technical advisor. He was a former reactor designer and a whistleblower who was on the National Diet of Japan Fukushima Nuclear Accident Independent Investigation Commission. That was a commission that was formed directly out of the diet. Yes, but it was quote-unquote independent investigation, so it took different people from different walks of life and different specialties and so on to investigate what what exactly happened in the accident. Basically, he doesn't agree with what was printed and what was decided in the report. Basically, he believes there needs to be further study because he believes that the hydrogen explosions were as a result of the earthquake, not caused by the tsunami. If it was caused by the tsunami, they can always build a higher seawall, they can say, oh, we'll build on higher ground, and they can keep the nuclear industry in perpetual motion. But if the earthquake was in pro- the problem, they're going to have a harder time restarting the various reactors around the country that are shut down now because it'll take a lot more investigation and a lot more shoring up of the present equipment and so on and so forth. So there's a real vested interest in not investigating this anymore. He's an outsider right now. He's, he was, I, I believe, I think I've seen the words purged from that commission. That report is finished. It's a closed case, and they don't want to reopen it again, but he believes that it should be reopened, and there needs to be more investigation, and the kind of investigation uh, and academic detail that will take years and years to figure out. But the government is on a timeline of they want to reopen reactors around the country, yeah, right, which is all you part of what? their campaign to sell nuclear technology to the rest of the world, which is part of it, Prime Minister Abe's plan to rebuild the economy of Japan. Exactly. So people like him, you know, what he can do is kind of bite away around the edges and talk at symposiums like this and try and cast doubt on things. And, you know, people like Hirose Takashi can go and uh, go into the zone and take measurements and try and think outside the box because we can't see inside the box. We can only see what TEPCO wants to show us inside the box. 
that's something I was talking to my husband yesterday, and he is very frightened right now about what's coming down the line in November, and it may be as early as October. That's the planned removal of the fuel rods from starting with spent fuel pool four. Is that what you're referring to? Exactly. And I just read in the Sankei Shinbun this morning that they're trying to accelerate it, and they believe they may even be a month ahead of schedule to start removing those rods. So rather than November, it could be starting as soon as October. The frightening thing now, though, is that TEPCO is announcing to the media, and then the media is parroting that to us. And we are saying, oh, okay, and just believing everything that's going on. And we can't really see what's going on. I doubt that if I asked any of my friends if they knew who Hirose Takashi was or if they knew who, if uh, they knew about the photo exhibition and the concert that I went to in Yokohama, they probably didn't know about it. But all these events were hugely well attended. I mean, standing room only. One thing I have to say the mood at the concert, at the symposium, at the No Nukes Tent Plaza or Hinto Hiroba, which is the Occupy movement in front of the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, at the Friday night demonstrations, is that everybody is very warm and welcoming and open and there's all kinds of discussion and conversation. You can walk up to anybody and talk to them. It's, you know, for Japan, where everybody's so closed off, it's, it's like a really amazing feeling to go and be able to talk to people so openly about the things that are going on. So the, the mood among people that are involved in these things, I would say, is very proactive. One of the other speakers at this symposium, who I'm interested to hear about, is Yamamoto Taro. He's the 35-year-old actor who came out with anti-nuclear comments, was dropped by his agent, and then turned around and ran for office and won a seat in the upper house of the Diet. What's people's response to them? Do they take him seriously as a spokesperson on this issue? Is there any kind of put-down because he is an actor? What was his impact on the crowd, and what was the feeling about him? The symposium I went to, he was not a planned speaker. He was sort of a surprise guest, and people were just absolutely thrilled that he was there. Number one, because many of the people involved in this anti-nuclear movement in Japan are senior citizens, and so it's wonderful to have this icon who's young, who's handsome, who is intelligent, who's vibrant, be up there talking about the cause. He's also very personable and caring. He actually went with Hirose Takashi. He went with him together to Germany to research about the nuclear waste issue there. And so he's he's not just, you know, a, a cute face or a, a mascot for the cause. He really is taking deeper interest and trying to get a little bit more intellectual depth. 
My husband just yesterday went to a symposium where Yamamoto Taro was actually the main speaker, and that was very interesting because it was a symposium planned mostly for women, and so it was women with children coming to listen to him. And one thing he said, because people joke, oh, well, they're, you know, they're just your fan club. And he said, I don't want you to be just my fan club. I want you to go out there and learn about things, and I want you to take responsibility, and I want you to all take an active role. So he's inspiring this group of women to become more proactive about protecting their children and protecting the environment. So I think he will be a real injection of youthful energy into the movement. The government of Japan has brought suit against members of the No Nukes Tent Plaza. That I believe one of the founders of that was Chieko Shine, who we've had on this program before. But they've been trying to evict them and brought them up on charges. Could you tell us a little bit about the background on this and also what took place at the August 26th press conference? The Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, uh, they're trying to evict the people from the no-nukes tent. And they have picked out two men, and one of them is Jigami-san, and the other man is Masakiyo-san. They brought suit against these men and basically said, you owe us all of this money for occupying the property, which, of course, neither of the men can pay, and nobody in the no-nukes tent can pay, because... Many of the people there are actually victims, evacuees from Fukushima that trek down and camp out there. Really, they're serving as a conscience for the ministry and for the country. And they've been there since a short time after Fukushima, camping out constantly. Yes, they have. So the, the suit was brought against these two men. But the funny thing is, Masakiyo san is not even one of the main players in the tent. He happens to be somebody who's involved in humanitarian aid. And he took at least 10 different times, he's taken truckloads of bottled water up to the people in Fukushima so that they would have clean water to drink. So that's the kind of work he does. And I assume that, you know, every so often he visits the tent like, many of us do, to go and see what's going on and chat with people and give moral support, but he's not actually one of the main players. Now, the other main player, uh, his name escapes me right now, he and Masakiyo-san both share one characteristic, which is a full head of white hair, and that's the only thing that looks alike about them. And the, otherwise, they don't look alike at all, and it's it's funny. So it's sort of a case of mistaken identity. And oh, the government, in other words, has brought somebody up on charges who's not an appropriate target for them? Right. They're saying that Masakiyo-san is this other person who is obviously not. So uh, the judge in the trial said, well, this is ridiculous, and I don't believe the case has been thrown out of court yet, but... 
you know, it, it's sort of stymied right now. And in, in the in that and in the meantime, the tent city remains in place. Yes, it's not really a tent city. It's about three different sort of pop-ups. You know what we use here when we go out for a picnic, the pop-up that you have your picnic table under? There's three of those, and then they kind of uh, close those in with some tarps. And it's, it's actually very touching to be there. When I was sitting there the other day when I was going to go on their Friday uh, Internet TV program, I was sitting there and watching. And inside they have set up all the tatami mats, all of the kind of little characteristics of a Japanese living room. They have the folded cranes hanging off of one wall. So it's not really a tent city. It's kind of just the corner is sort of cordoned off with these pop-ups that have sort of been built out to be more like shelters. Tell the story about just the 88-year-old woman who you spoke with. When I arrived at Kasumigaseki Station, I took the elevator up to the, the tent plaza and the woman in the elevator who was actually from Fukushima Prefecture, she is 88 years old and she proudly told me that she spends every Friday, because you know Friday is the big day of the demonstrations every week, so every Friday she comes and she sits in front of the tent to guard the tent. Guard the tent one thing is the ultra-rightists. They harass them. I heard that the week before I was there, there actually a little bit of violence broke out. The ultra-right wing is something that has been around in Japan for a long time. Whenever they don't agree with something that the government is doing, they go in these huge trucks with these giant speakers on them and bellow out, how dare you insult the land of the rising sun and, you know, all of these things. So the ultra-rightists have actually come and harassed the people in the, in the tent. And here's an 88-year-old woman from Fukushima standing there to stop them. That's right. So the Friday nights especially because that's the night when the big demonstrations happen. So there are a lot of these little grandmotherly-like women that sit in front you told me a story about your husband traveling to Fukushima in July, and what was his experience there in looking at the peach orchards? There's a place in Fukushima, it's called the Peach Road, and I gather that it used to be kind of a tourist destination to go and see all of the peach orchards along the river. And he went there, and he saw, number one, that there was an incinerator, right in the middle of the orchards. And the incinerator, they had posted the amount of radiation for that particular time. And then my husband used his own Geiger counter, and the amount of radiation was actually twice that. We don't buy peaches from Fukushima. Beverly, I know that you're very involved with working on behalf of the mothers and the children Yes. in Fukushima. Give us a sense of the work that you are doing and how we might support you. Well, 
actually, one of the things I do is try and raise awareness, and I go on speaking engagements places. I feel that it's absolutely crucial that we reach outside of our core network of activists and reach out into the greater community and talk to people about what's going on. So I, I've gone to schools, elementary school, middle school. Um, I've spoken at uh, senior community, and uh, I have contacts with uh, faith-based communities. I would say that anywhere you know that you think might be receptive of a humanitarian-type message is somewhere that I would like to go and speak. I have to say that I feel a great deal of relief that San Onofre is shut down because I can now try and turn off that activist part of what I've been doing and focus more on the humanitarian message, which I think is probably easier to receive by people. Now, I want to share this with you that one of the kindest people that I've met in the past few months that's talking about Fukushima is a woman who worked for Southern California Edison, and so did her husband. He just recently retired from there. And they were very interested in what's going on. She came and listened um, to my talk here in my home. Her son actually appeared on a video of messages that I uh, put together of the children at the school here that we, uh, in turn, took to Date City in Fukushima to uh, actually the school board there heard their messages. So their son actually appeared on that video. So for me, that just that made me so happy that you know even somebody who is you know technically from the enemy camp. <laughs> is receptive to the humanitarian message. So if people were to contact you with leads to speaking engagements or offers for them, where would they go? I have a Facebook page that's called Families for Safe Energy. And we do speaking engagements. We also do fundraising. In May, we just did a Coco concert and raised over $10,000 to be able to send children down to that Kuminosato beach camp in Okinawa. At any point that you have specific information, we will be happy to pass it along on Nuclear Hot Seat, and I will also be posting links to you on this week's edition number 116. Beverly Finlay Kaneko, thank you so much for being our guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. That was Beverly Finlay Kaneko. She's part of the bilingual team of Families for Safe Energy, an independent educational organization that supports communities and schools in learning about safe energy resources. We will have a link to her site up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog. We'll have a radiation protection tip in just a moment, but first, I want to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to keep bringing you the news you won't get anywhere else. All the week's nuclear news, no matter how bad it is, radiation protection tips, activist opportunities, numbnuts of the week, the NRC doc report, as much humor as I can cram into one of these suckers, and a whole bunch more. 
So if you'd like to help, go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down on the homepage, and click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can do to help us out, know that it's appreciated and helps keep us going. Here's the radiation protection tip. Nuclear experts love to discount radiation releases from nuclear facilities by claiming that the amount of radiation one is exposed to in any accident is inconsequential, no more than what you'd get from a dental x-ray. This comparison and others made to exposure during x-rays, MRIs, jet plane rides, the effects of atmospheric radiation, and even the number of bananas one eats are shockingly simple-minded and meant to confuse the issue. All radiation is dangerous, and according to our government's own report on the biological effects of ionizing radiation, there is no level below which it is safe to be exposed to radiation. The impact is cumulative over your entire life and cannot be reversed. So it's best to avoid all exposure to radiation whenever possible. And when you hear information to the contrary from one of the so-called experts, take it with a grain of salt, preferably non-Pacific sourced sea salt. Don't let them talk you out of your vigilance and concern. And realize that it is important to learn what supplements to take, what foods to avoid, detoxification protocols, and sanitation tips to protect yourself and your loved one. Nuclear Hot Seat is currently working with nutritional experts to put together trainings, consultations, even webinars on radiation protection. To learn more, let us know you're interested by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. A reminder that I'm still looking for contacts to John Stewart because I am his nuclear pundit for The Daily Show. So if you know John, or if you know someone who knows John, or I'll take six degrees of separation or however many it takes. Let's see what we can do to get the two of us together. Send that information to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Here's the week's final thought. Too tired, I'm out. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Wednesday, September 3rd, 2013. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, Japan Times, NHK, Kyoto News, fukuleaks.org, Common Dreams, The Guardian, Intellihub.com, CNN International's Raitsa Vasileva, The Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan, Voice of Russia UK Edition, ABC Radio Australia, Arurang News, World Nuclear News, BBC website, NBC News, and Jeremy Hsu of Live Science, ABC News, azfamily.com, CBS Local Boston, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. I love you guys. The archive for Nuclear Hot Seat is available on iTunes or the blog page of our website. 116 episodes now, including interviews with experts on every aspect of the nuclear story, locally, nationally, and internationally. So check it out, and be sure to friend me by my name or by either of the two Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook pages. I don't know how to consolidate them. There are two. Deal with it. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Note also that I am available for speaking engagements, online interviews, and hey, you know, John Stewart, feel free to reach out. I'd welcome it. We are copyright 2013, Lee B. Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You have my permission to reuse as long as proper attribution and website are included. 
This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. <laughs>